0: Thanks, Esther. That's awesome. Hey, if I haven't met you before, my name's Tom. I usually haunt 11 a.m., but it's nice to visit across today. Um, If you are kind of new or you're still working out how Vine Church works, we don't just meet on a Sunday. Um, We have midweek groups, small groups, community groups, whatever you want to call them, growth growth groups. And um, at Growth Group this week... Um, we studied these, uh, these same verses, but we actually went a little bit broader. So I think we did chapters kind of 14 through 16. And so the exercise that hopefully your group did was to um, walk through a whole bunch of the different kings, basically a list of them. And you may even have kind of gone through a table where you're basically supposed to just work out, was that king good? Was that king bad? What was particular about their reign? And the big Point that we're supposed to get from this whole section of one kings is wow, all these kings really suck. Um, wow, all of these leaders of God's people led them away from uh, God. They set up idols, or they endorsed people who did, and they led us away from God. And it makes us long for a king who will lead us towards God, a good king. And so, you know, if you've been in church long enough, you can work out who that might be. Uh, A second application uh, from the small group study this week, which was particularly helpful, was to think about the way that each of these uh, kings, their life was assessed. It was less assessed on what did they do or their achievements. It was more about, hey, look at their character, look at their obedience or their lack of it. And there's a helpful application there for us as well to think, okay, what's my life about? Am I mostly thinking about myself in terms of what I've done, the way people look at, or how's my character and my obedience to God? So could have re-preached that, and that could be the next 30 minutes or so. But I want to take you um, just a little bit more focused on 1 Kings chapter 15. Today, So that was the broad picture of 1 Kings. I'm going to zero in right now on 1 Kings 15. Uh, and there are so many different things that you could draw out that are helpful in our life in 2022, even though we're reading some stuff from thousands of years ago. But what I really want to zero in on is one particular phrase. So when you can go home today and uh, you say, what was the sermon about? Um, you can say, oh, it's basically just these two words. The two words were true devotion. If you're reading uh, from like a a different translation of the Bible, you might have the words, holy, true. I'm looking particularly at uh, chapter 15, verse 3 was the first place that it came up. So Grant um, kind of hinted at this. uh, When we think about holy, true lives or lives of full devotion, am I right in saying that to some extent we admire people? who live lives of devotion to something. Now it's 2022 and we live in a very uh, kind of postmodern age where it doesn't really matter what you're devoted to, but we're just impressed by the fact that you're devoted to something. And so I don't particularly want to climb that really dangerous looking wall over there, but somebody has dedicated their whole life going into Yosemite, uh, looking at all of the way that configure how do I how do I climb this route for the first time? Oh, maybe I'll do it without ropes. And we think, okay, that guy's great. That guy's fully devoted to a slightly insane cause. Uh, maybe for you, it's an artist. And you think, oh, that artist had a vision for a work that could be, a piece that could be, and they've spent years bringing it to life. They've shown full devotion. And at the same time, even though I'm impressed by their devotion, I know that I myself am not really truly devoted to anything. At best, I'm an 80% kind of guy, right? Um, a lot of, you know, four out of five weeks, maybe, I'm really into the gym, I'm on my routine, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. One out of five weeks, it's cheat week. Uh, I, I look at myself, and it's very difficult to say, yeah, I'm truly devoted, but I kind of wish that I was. I kind of wish that I was like all of those crazy people who had found their thing and chased after it fully with total devotion. And I wonder if that's the same for you. So with all of that as introduction to the idea of true devotion, I want to take you on a brief tour of One Kings because this idea of true devotion or wholly true comes up at least four times in One Kings. So let's get the first one up on the screen. It's from uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 61. Uh, and this is Solomon. It's a high point in the uh, history of God's people, not because they moved into a building, but because they did something even more important, which was they made the temple of God. And at that kind of dedication ceremony moment, Solomon says to them, may your hearts be fully committed, that's the word, to the Lord our God, to live by His decrees and obey His commands, as at this time. Now what's ironic about that is that the next time we get this phrase, "truly devoted come up, it's Solomon again. We'll get the next slide, uh, One King's 114. I'm sure there's a section of us who can't quite see the screen, if like that speaker is in the way, but just roll with me. Believe me that's true. One, 1 King's 114, uh, where it says, "As Solomon grew old, His wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted, there's our word, to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. So it's the same guy who says, hey, temple's dedicated, let's all be fully devoted to God, and a couple of years later, it's that same guy who uh, doesn't exactly live that out. So the third time that this idea of true devotion comes up, uh, 1 Kings 15, which is our section today, and it's verse... So I want to talk to you particularly about uh, this first king. We're going to focus particularly on um, Abijah, David, and Asa today. I was listening to um, another guy, like a recorded sermon about 1 Kings 15, and he seemed like he was a Hebrew scholar, and he said those names like they were proper Hebrew names. Uh, So it was like Abijah, or like Asa, or I'm just going to say it kind of like I'm a white guy. So I'm going to say Abijah. Abijah. And um we're going to look at verse 3 and this is talking about Abijah. It says he committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his forefather had been. That's a pretty strong indictment, isn't it? He didn't just commit some he committed all the sins. That the father had done before him. Just the whole lot. So, this guy is pretty lousy in the way he's being assessed by the writer of 1 Kings at the end of his life. And the idea here um, if you've been, you know, if you were very familiar with the things of the Old Testament, particularly maybe Deuteronomy, there's this link between obedient kings and having a long line or a long life. The idea is that the more obedient the king, more likely, God is to kind of prosper them and to continue their line. And so, when you see that this king really sucked, if you've read Deuteronomy, the idea is okay, well, God will probably cut off his line. There won't be a continued dynasty for this guy. And so, verse four in the mind of the original reader is quite surprising. We can pull it up. Nevertheless, there's a disjunction there for David's sake. The Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. Did the line get cut off because he was so undevoted to God? No. In a surprising twist, for David's sake instead of for Abijah's sake, his line is continued. And so there's kind of our first pause point for today. The gist seems to be That Abijah was unfaithful, but God was faithful. And which one of those two factors is bigger and stronger? It's God's faithfulness is bigger than Abijah's unfaithfulness. Let me define that a little bit more specifically. What's this for David's sake bit? Um, If you've read uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, which come a little bit before the Kings, you might have come across this passage. We'll bring it up. uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7 bunch of different areas there where God makes a very significant Old Testament promise to David. And it says here, God says to David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. So it's a biological line. And I will establish his kingdom. A little bit further on, your throne will be established forever. Now, the missing link here is that Abijah... Is a descendant, descendant, descendant of David, and so Abijah is one of these guys who is kind of like David's offspring, and so kind of there's a there's a there's a, a point of divergence for God at this. He goes, Am I going to um, punish Abijah for being such a lousy king, leading people away, or am I going to stick to my promise to David that I already gave that his line would continue on forever? God chooses the latter. And so what we see here is the big principle that we can start to bring into our world now today is that God's faithfulness to his promises is bigger, stronger, overwhelms any individual's unfaithfulness. Now, we can start to kind of see how that plays out in our life as well, right? Uh, We all sit here in biblical categories as people who are unfaithful to God, and yet God's faithfulness to his promises to us is stronger than our unfaithfulness, and let me try and uh, add some flesh to that, because I think, um, tell me whether this has been your experience as well. Um, in churches, I've found that we sing a lot of songs that talk about, you know, God is faithful, and we, we celebrate that, or we go, God is true to his promises, and we, we sing, and we never really. I I never really find people defining what are God's promises to us. What are the things that God is faithful to do in my life? And because if you go to some, you know, you might actually sit in unhelpful churches that unhelpfully apply some things and say that's a promise of God to you. You know, He will make your life very easy and excellent if you follow Him. That's not one of God's promises to us. He is not faithful to that promise. So, what promises? has God made to his New Testament people that we can actually stick to? Um, Do we have any readers in the room, kind of big book people? you got a little Surrey Hills apartment, can't fit all your books in it. Um, That's a little bit like my world. Um, This is one of my favourite books, though, um, and it's actually just an exercise book from Kmart or something. Uh, Started it seven or eight years ago. On the front, I've just written God Said. And uh, started to try and collect... A bunch of uh, promises that seem to apply to us, from uh, particularly the New Testament, into our lives. Now, I remember um, one of—I think it was one of Grant's sermons—the other day. He quoted this one. He said, um, "No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or field for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come, eternal life." That is a promise that God has made to His followers of Jesus today. And no matter how unfaithful we are, God's faithfulness is bigger and stronger as it was in the life of Abijah. To his promises. Now you have to be careful because it is very easy to take something from the Bible and um, falsely apply it to ourselves. Say, that's a promise for me. Actually, that was kind of more for the apostles or that was maybe more for the Old Testament people. But carefully done, can I commend to you the practice of in a book or in your heart or underlining in your Bible or whatever, storing up the promises of God in your life. Because the big principle that we see from uh, the life of Abijah is that God's faithfulness to the stuff he's promised is bigger and stronger than our individual unfaithfulness. That's the first point that I really wanted to make today. So... Having looked a little bit at the life of Abijah, let's think about a second person in 1 Kings 15 and their relationship to the holy true idea. The whole sermon today, it's all about holy true, true devotion, all those words. So let's think about the second guy, David, because David comes up in those verses that we've already looked at and his relationship to holy true, which to be honest, I found quite confusing. And I'm going to try and show you how confused you ought to be of about David's relationship. So let's pull up. Um, yeah, let's go to the next slide. Thanks so much. Uh, 1 Kings 15, 3, where we've already been, it says, He, Abijah, committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his forefather had been. So apparently, Abijah, was he holy, faithful, holy, true? Nah. Was David? Apparently, yes. He gets a tick. Are you confused yet? If you're not confused, let me show you verse 5. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. A little bit of background there. The most important person is actually not Uriah the Hittite, it's Bathsheba. Um, One of the biggest things I know about David is that he was the guy who, as a king, uh, abused his power to sleep with a woman he saw uh, called Bathsheba. Um, she then was uh, going to have a baby as a result of that moment, and David um, doesn't confess or anything. He goes and adds to his blatant adultery and power abuse um, the sin of actually uh, murdering Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. To me, that is blatant, that is obvious, that is dramatic, and that is the kind of thing that would give a cross in the wholly devoted category... If I was writing 1 Kings, I would say, Abijah walked in all the sins of his father, bit of a dud. David did the Bathsheba-Uriah moment, bit of a dud. Are you confused yet? Because the way the Bible writers have done it is they said, yeah, no, David was uh, fully devoted, truly devoted. Hopefully, by now, you're confused. Now. Let's try and uh, work out what's going on here. There are two things I've found um, that seem to unlock part of this for us. Uh, the first one is that people uh, have written... It's a little bit more about sincerity than it is about sinlessness. So our accusation is, well, David kind of been wholly true because he did this big sin. And so it's very clear that, you know, in 1 Kings 15.5, they're like, yep, he did that. We acknowledge that. And so the category of what it looks like to be truly devoted to God in 1 Kings is not as simple as, never did anything wrong. It is possible, in the biblical categories, to be counted by God as truly devoted, even without a perfect record. It starts to reframe the biblical categories for us. Maybe it's more about sincerity than it is about sinlessness. And the second thing that really started to unlock this for me was in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is like a, a, a hall of fame of like famous Old Testament uh, believers. So, you know, how good's Abraham, his way was good. He, how good's Moses, his, his way was good. And, and then we get up to verse 20, uh, 32, sorry for the typo, 32. Uh, and the writer of Hebrews says, I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David... And Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, and then it goes on, talks about them conquering kingdoms, administering justice, gaining what was promised. It skips down a little bit there, and it really makes it super clear, super obvious for us. In verse 39, it says, They were all commended for their faith. Now, it's very possible that you're sitting in the room at this moment and you're thinking, what a joke. That sounds unfair. That's ridiculous. They shouldn't be commended for their faith. They should be condemned for their actions. But doesn't this start to take us right to the heart of the gospel? Take us right to the heart of what makes Christianity distinct. If you're uncomfortable with the idea of somebody being declared right in God's sight, purely based on their faith, independent of their action, you're going to be very uncomfortable with the message about Jesus dying on the cross. The biblical categories seem to be that faith in Jesus is more significant to the label God applies to you than your action. Hopefully I've stated that starkly enough. If you're uh, not sure if you're a believer, if you're kind of new to this Christianity thing, this is the bit to zero in on. Christianity is a faith, that is, a, is a world religion, that says um, you can be judged, truly devoted by, uh, to God. In God's eyes, he can give you a tick of approval, even with a dramatically checkered past. Even without having been in church your whole life, even without anything particularly to offer for your commendation before God. How is that possible without it being a completely unjust system? It's possible because there was once one guy who actually was truly devoted to God. He was, in fact, the son of God. And that meant that he had a clean slate. He was a blank canvas. So when he died on that cross, he could take all of our undevotedness all of our untruth, put it on him so it's no longer on us. And in fact, he doesn't just take your bad, he gives you his good so that when God looks at you, if you have faith in his son, and what he did on that cross, dying and rising again, he would look at you and not say, that's a rebel, but he'd say, no, that's my daughter. And not say, that's an idiot, but say, no, that's my son. I love them. I acknowledge... What they have done. And at the same time, the category that God is going to apply to those who have faith in his promises, faith in his son, is to give to them the label of true devotion. So let me plead with you. If you're not sure where you stand with Jesus today, the thing to do is to step towards having faith in Jesus And pleading that as your case before God. I think we sung about that in the song at the start. So, this is where we're up to so far. We've had a look at, um, oh, should we do David and Jesus? Let's do this, let's do this. Thanks. Slides always help me remember what I'm supposed to do next. Can I also, so if you're a Christian, um, can I throw you back to that 2 Samuel 7 promise, right? So we're starting in uh, 1 Kings 15 and we're going, hey, I'm really surprised that um, the promise to David has, has counted over Abijah's sin. We've got the 2 Samuel 7 promise. My question is, is that promise still happening today? In 1 Kings, God stuck fiercely to this promise in the face of Abijah's disobedience. Is he still sticking fiercely to the 2 Samuel 7 promise today? (laughs) Thanks, Jared. (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. Um, Here's how, if we pull up our David little Jesus slide. um, It works because Jesus is a son of David. Uh, When you get to the very first chapter in the New Testament, uh, Matthew chapter 1, it's a bit disappointing because it's just a list of names. But the point of the names is to show you in part, that Jesus comes from the line of David. Jesus is one of these guys who's part of the forever fulfillment of David's line. And we don't often think of ourselves as being connected to David's line, but we're very comfortable saying, yep, I'm connected to Jesus' dynasty. I'm a follower of King Jesus. And by extension, him as the son of David. I am, you are, We together are Australian. We are um, the fulfillment of the promise thousands of years ago, thousands of kilometers away that God made to that one guy, to Samuel chapter 7, David. We are part of the fulfillment of that. So hopefully it brings you a little bit more into the Old Testament, helps you see how you fit with the big picture of kind of the Bible's timeline. Now that that slide has prompted me, let's move on. Here we go. We're talking about these three guys today, all under the idea of true devotion, holy, true. And we've talked about Abijah. And he's shown us God's faithfulness, bigger than our unfaithfulness. We've talked about David, who reframes God's categories for us, makes faith a seriously significant moment, seriously significant category in how God labels us. And uh, finally, I'd love to talk about Asa, who demonstrates what it looks like to live a life of true devotion, kind of. And so come with me to uh, 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 11, this time through. Thank you so much, Dave. 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 11. And it says, Asa did what was right, oh, that's refreshing, in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his ancestors had made. He even deposed his grandmother, Maka from her position as queen mother because she'd made a repulsive image for the worship of Asherah. Asa cut it down, burned it in the Kidron Valley. Um, Asa gets a pretty good rap here. Uh, In some of the following verses, it kind of shows us that he wasn't the perfect guy, but right now we can see this guy was a religious reformer, in the positive sense. Um, he was bringing good. He was bringing God's people back to the way they were supposed to live. He was chopping it. Three things that we see about kind of that might apply to your life, that we see modeled in his life about what it looks like to live a life of true devotion. Um, first thing, I want you to notice the cost. What it might have cost him. And that cost is particularly relational, even within the family unit. Um, It's pretty wild that he deposed his grandma. Um, Think about, he probably, you know, he probably had a pretty um, close relationship with his grandma in the way that society structures and family structures back then worked. Um, They possibly um, lived in the same kind of set of buildings, Um, It seems like she had possibly had a role in raising him. And if you could see it from an outsider's perspective, or even see it from her perspective, it could go something like this. I raised that boy Asa. I brought him up in our ancestral traditions. And as soon as he gained power, it went to his head. And in an arrogant act... He has deposed me in my old age, taking away my security, what a heartless young boy, and his action to his grandma. You can see it framed that way, can't you? From the outsider. And at the same time, you can see it framed by uh, the the writer of 1 Kings, who is particularly concerned with true devotion and the fact that God's people are meant to follow God and not some kind of idol-worshipping system. And he is commended here for this dramatic action which would have caused absolute chaos in the family. And now this strikes home for some of us quite strongly compared to others. Some of you know all too well the cost of true devotion often comes with a relational cost. Friends or even family who are not at all fans of where you are right now. They think you're either just throwing away a good life by being committed to the Christian thing, or it's actually turned you into a bit of a jerk, and they, they think that what you stand for is deeply immoral. Or For some of us in the room, this is all too real. We know that family tensions come from being devoted to God. And that ought not surprise us either. Jesus spoke about that. He talked about how families would be split from one another. There's this famous verse where he talks about, you know, I didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And even now, as a result of me, um, fathers will be turned against sons, sons against fathers, mothers will be turned against daughters, daughters against mothers. And if that's you, I just want to affirm your experience as someone who's trying to follow God and you are in a lot of feedback, even from within the family. Now, hopefully you're not copying feedback because you're actually being a jerk about it. But if you are sticking to God with a clean heart, can I just join your cheer squad and say good on you? Keep at it. Jesus told us to expect it. It's modelled in 1 Kings as well. That often the cost of true devotion is relational. So, with you in that. Uh, the second, quite confronting uh, thing about Ace's true devotion, if you notice up here, is it's very negative. It's very choppy, choppy, cut, cut. Um, have a look at it. I'll try and emphasize some of the words as we go through. What it looks like for him to be um, fully devoted is that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father had done, he expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land, and got rid of all the idols his ancestors had made. He even deposed his grandmother, Maka, from her position as queen mother because she'd made a repulsive image. And uh, the verse that I forgot to say there is, Asa cut it down and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Um, there's lots of things that we get from the whole, um, the whole, the whole set of the scriptures combined about what it looks like to follow God, but what's on display here is the choppy-choppy-cut-cut aspect of it. And there may be things in your life that actually, if if you were going to be truly devoted, the call of Jesus to us as well is that there are some things that need to be removed from your life if you are going to be truly devoted to Him. Uh, One of his more famous and confusing things he said is, uh, you know, if if your eye causes you to sin, then gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, then chop it off. A lot of similar language to what we have in the example of Asa. Um, I'm going to have a gentle jab here. Take it or leave it on this one. This is not the Bible, but this is me having an attempt at trying to really get stuck in to our lives. And twist a little bit. Lots of people through COVID, um, they felt very disconnected from their churches. And so uh, after kind of all the physical restrictions of COVID have chilled out a bit, lots of people have been deciding uh, you know, across Australia, do I want to go back to church? And if so, which type of church do I want to go back to? This might be you joining online, uh, maybe you're thinking even about changing churches or whatever it is, maybe here for you. Um, there, is a, there is a particular appeal to different churches for different people. And I wonder whether it has to do with what churches go hard on and what churches go soft on. Simple example. If you're trying to work out which church to go to, and you know deep down that greed is a big thing for you, then it is likely that you will choose a church that goes gentle on talking about money. Because you don't want a church that pushes you to cut off greed from your life. Another example. If you know that alcohol is a big thing in your life and maybe it's not uh, being used by you the way God would have it, you are likely to choose a church that normalizes alcohol as a part of culture. Now, there's a whole theology around alcohol that we can do. It's actually a good gift from God, but it's got to be... But just for the sake of having a gentle jab right now, Is it possible that the church you have chosen is the church that doesn't push on the areas you don't want to cut off? Take it or leave it. That's not from the Bible. That's me just um, trying to apply that super deeply to us. Third thing that Asa shows us about true devotion. So he shows us it's it's got a relational cost. It's got a um, kind of chopped down, a removal aspect to being truly devoted. Uh, Have we got 1 Kings 15.15 coming up there? Uh, He brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. Um, Suffice it to say, there is often a financial aspect to true devotion, simply said. Now, what's fascinating about Asa? I said he's an example of true devotion, kind of. Um, we get we get the link here with the money. So let me just summarize what happens next in the life of Asa. Um, he faces a political crisis. His enemy is on his doorstep. He withdraws that same money or those same uh, silver and gold objects in order to um, kind of pay or to bribe or whatever another nation to ally with him against his enemies. Uh, so that he can kind of shore up uh, his political position. And so often, the moment when we um, start to turn away from true devotion, we can see, as in the life of Asa, you get something that you had dedicated to the Lord, and you kind of take it back with a very reasonable reason. He needed it for this significant political endeavor. And at the same time, we can see that what he's done is he's dedicated something to the Lord, and then he's D-dedicated it. And so often that happens when we start to untruly devote ourselves, that was horrible English, to following God. Um, We also get, if we've got 1 Kings 15, 14 as a slide, um, this is kind of the the clarity moment here where we see Asa wasn't a perfect example of being truly devoted. It says, although he did not remove the high places, uh, that's kind of alternative places of worship, Um, Despite that, and now we're back to the David stuff, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life through faith, even acknowledging his blind spots and even acknowledging his false actions. Are you with me so far? We're almost towards the end. We've gone through our three major characters and how they relate to the idea of being truly devoted. Let's talk about us. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about you or me, truly devoted in the room right now. Now, the application from today is not go home, be more truly devoted. It's not it. Here's why. Um, we know from the grand scope of the Bible that people in general, uh, we are all like our father Adam. We are all in his line. And we are all people who naturally, uh, by tendency, by nature, by choice reject the God of the universe, we are not naturally wholly true in following the God who made us. But once, there was one guy who was. His name is Jesus. He was the only wholly true, wholly truly devoted guy. He died on the cross. And in that moment, he positionally changed you. He, He moved you from category one to category two. He moved you from untruly devoted to, now you are truly devoted to God, not because you became more devoted and tried a bit harder, but because Jesus devoted you to God. You have been bought at the price of Jesus' blood, and now you are devoted to God whether or not you tried hard this week or not, you are, if you're in Christ and united to Jesus, you are truly devoted. Not because you devoted yourself, but because Jesus has devoted you. And so the call is not, go home, be more devoted. The call is, you are devoted. Now, let's live it out. Let's make our lives match that truth. Does that make any sense? It's a bit of a different way of framing it. And I'd love to finish because um, you know the Bible doesn't ultimately finish with us. The Bible is one big story. It all centers around this person of Jesus. So let me show you how Jesus really is the fulfillment of all three of these characters. Uh, let's think about our third character first. Uh, we had Asa. Asa was the great religious reformer of 1 Kings 15. He chopped down the idols. Jesus was the great religious reformer who went into the temple. He overturned uh, the tables of those who'd made it into a marketplace. He spent a whole bunch of his time biffing with the religious authorities of the day who'd taken everything and twisted it. Jesus is the true Asa who was truly devoted the whole time, and there's no kind of about it. Jesus is the true Asa. And when we think about David, Jesus is also the true David. Uh, David finds his ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. David received these massive promises from God about a line that would never end. The same kind of promise is made uh, by Jesus, actually, about his own church. The line that would never end. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Can you see the similarity with the 2 Samuel 7 promise? That Jesus has a never-ending thing as well. We stand in, G- in Jesus, connected to him as a part of his church, and so we stand in the line of David. But Jesus is the guy who it's all about. And so Jesus is the true and better David. Let me show you one more thing. Are there any more slides, Dave? Let me show you one thing. You really want to look at the passage for this one. It's 1 Kings 15.3. If you can get 1 Kings 15.3, I'll give you a wow moment. I texted Grant about this. He didn't text me back. It's too, too important. 1 Kings chapter 15, 3. Question is, how many dads does this guy have? He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his forefather had been. How many dads does Abijah have? Yell it out, Jared. Jared, Two or three. three. He's definitely got two, right? We can definitely say he's got two. He committed all the sins. His father, so we're talking about his biological father, who comes before in 1 Kings 14. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of... Of David his forefather had been. Now the translators have been very generous there. The word is father, father, but the translators have gone, hey, David's his forefather, so we'll just slightly help help us with the reading there. But there is also a third father in this verse. Um, Abijah's name is a triple-threat compound word. Ab, father, i, my, ya, Yahweh. Father my Yahweh, Father my God, God is my Father. Dramatic name to have labeled. Now the idea here is family resemblance. Whenever I walk in somewhere with my dad, people just laugh because they look at us and they're like, you're the younger version of him. You are exactly, you look like him. Um, There there is an idea of family resemblance. Maybe you look like your mum. you look like your brothers and your sisters. Uh, The question is, who did Abijah... Look like who was he? Which of his fathers was he like? Was he like his biological father? Was he like his forefather? Was he like God his father? And what we know is that Jesus was the only one who ever actually lived like God was his father. He was the only one who ever resembled truly God as his father. And so there is a very real sense in which Jesus is the true Asa, Jesus is the true David, and Jesus is the true Abijah. Shall I pray? God, we love you, and you are so good to us, even when we are not good to you. We thank you for your promises to us, and we ask that increasingly we would know what they are and then have a a sure confidence that you will do those things for us. Please help us to accurately understand your promises. Um, God, we thank you that you have devoted us to yourself as Christians. We recognise that we could never truly devote ourselves to you. So thank you that you have done it, and we ask that you would help us to be a church that lives like it. So please show us areas where you would have us um, increasingly... Uh, live our lives in a devoted way to you and everybody who agreed said